Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A deadly attack on a train station in Ukraine. An evacuation effort was underway. The European Commission chief arrives in Kyiv to offer reassurance of EU membership. Germany intercepts Russian military communications. It's reportedly talk about Russian troops indiscriminately killing civilians in Ukraine. As the U.S. condemns Russia's actions, a video reveals possible war crimes committed by Ukrainian forces against Russian troops. Ukraine's foreign minister responds. A Palestinian gunman is killed by Israeli security forces after he kills two and injures many in Tel Aviv. Authorities say he was in the country illegally. We begin today in eastern Ukraine, where dozens of civilians have reportedly been killed at a train station in a rocket attack. Warning, the following video may be disturbing to some viewers due to its graphic nature. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Ukraine says Russia struck a train station Friday in the city of Kramatorsk in the Donetsk region. Civilians were trying to evacuate, according to the state railway company. It said two Russian rockets hit the station, killing more than 30 people, including at least two children, and wounding over 100. Russia denies hitting the station, saying images show debris from a weapon system that only Ukrainian forces use. Our armed forces do not use missiles of this type. There are no compact missions in Kremistort, and none have been scheduled for today. NTD couldn't verify what happened at the station. In over in Kyiv, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the situation in Borodyanka is worse than in nearby Bucha, where Russian forces are suspected of killing civilians. The work to clear the rubble in Borodyanka has begun. It's specifically more dreadful there, even more victims from the Russian occupiers. Zelensky didn't give any details or evidence that Russia was responsible for civilian deaths in the town. Meanwhile, two European Union leaders arrived in Kyiv Friday to reassure Zelensky on membership. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen told reporters she was bringing an important message to Zelensky, that there will be the EU path for Ukraine. Top diplomat Joseph Borrell told reporters the visit's a signal that Ukraine is in control of its territory and the government is still in charge. And over in the United States, Washington is ramping up sanctions this week, including banning Americans from investing in Russia. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyema says this cuts Russia off from the world's biggest source of money. And what this means is that um, Russia will be deprived of the capital it needs to both build up its economy, but also to invest in its war machine. As for curbing Russian energy exports, Adeyema says that will take some time. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Finnish government websites were hacked today. This happened during Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's video address to Finland's parliament. The ministries for defense and foreign affairs both tweeted that their websites had been hit by denial of service attacks, which are typically intended to make the sites unavailable to regular users. The foreign ministry later said the situation was resolved. The attacks also hit the main government website. Australian Bushmaster armored vehicles are on their way to Ukraine. Australia's defense minister says the protected mobility vehicles can help transport military personnel through mined areas. We're going to gift 20 Bushmasters to the Ukraine, and the idea will be to provide 
that support to uh, keep people safe. It's primarily used for the transport of personnel and it's uh, protected uh, against uh, the, the landmines which are out there. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, because we, there is one which is equipped as an ambulance, we'll be able to transport those who are wounded from the battlefield. During a meeting with the Australian Parliament last week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky specifically requested Bushmasters to help his country fight against Russia. The Australian government says the country's military assistance to Ukraine has totaled about $140 million. It's also provided humanitarian supplies to Ukraine and sanctioned almost 600 Russian individuals and entities. Meanwhile, in response, Russia's foreign ministry announced reverse sanctions against Australia. Moscow declared a ban on the entry of all members of the Australian parliament, as well as some members of state legislatures. That includes the country's prime minister, Scott Morrison. Germany has reportedly intercepted radio traffic from among Russian troops. In the communications, the voices that were heard discussed murdering civilians. German foreign intelligence agency BND picked up the communications. The Russians reportedly talked about indiscriminately killing civilians in Bucha. German magazine Der Spiegel reported the story. Images surfaced of bodies and graves in Bucha, and local officials say over 300 people were killed, including 50 who were executed. Those deaths are allegedly at the hands of the Russian forces. Russia denies responsibility and claims that the evidence was staged, but the Russians haven't provided evidence backing up that claim. The intercepted communications are believed to be consistent with images taken in Bucha. In one case, the German magazine said a soldier allegedly told his colleagues in one dialogue about shooting someone off their bicycle. And in one of the photos, a body was seen lying next to a bike. Now, two German ex-ministers are calling for a probe into Russian war crimes. The Russian military withdrew from Bucha over the weekend. Afterwards, several dozen civilians were found dead in the streets. A mass grave was discovered, and some of the victims had their hands tied while others appeared to have been tortured. Many women and children were also reportedly killed. The magazine found out that BND told members of parliament about its findings on Wednesday. In another intercepted conversation, a Russian warfighter allegedly said, first you interrogate soldiers, then you shoot them. But that's not all. The German intel apparently shows evidence that a group of Russian mercenaries called the Wagner Group were also involved. The group committed similar acts in Syria. The intercepted radio traffic is evidence that the apparent killing of civilians in Bucha was not a random act, but that these atrocities were just part of the troops' everyday lives. Sources familiar with the audio say this indicates that murdering civilians is standard procedure for the Russian military and even part of a bigger strategy, the intention being to spread fear among the Ukrainian civilian population and break down their will to fight back. Intelligence agencies have been ramping up the use of satellite imagery to help Ukraine as it defends against Russia's military advances. We hear from former intel officer with the Defense Intelligence Agency, Matthew Shoemaker. He describes how U.S., British, and NATO intelligence has impacted the war in Ukraine. The usage of intelligence uh, in this war is certainly unique uh, in this conflict, but it accomplishes a couple things. The first is that it's going to allow the Ukrainians to react to anything that's coming through the pipeline, if you will. Any information that they receive, they could then use for their own uh, military purposes. The other reason that it's incredibly useful is that it removes the element of surprise that the Russians 
really need in this offensive to throw the Ukrainians off and for them to be able to achieve the objectives that they have. Um, but the third element that it's rather useful is, is that it keeps the public, especially in the West, engaged, which is a very useful thing in a developed democracy where you need the public's support for, for engaging in hostile activities. Now, U.S. officials and British intel have both said that the Russian leadership may be misled on its military performance in its war in Ukraine. How has intelligence been different from this war versus others? Sure. From the from the Russian perspective in general, this is more part and parcel for how the the Russian military and the Russian government is is set up and how it's organized. Is that it's it very much is is going back to the Soviet days of people are afraid to give bad news to their superiors. So intelligence oftentimes gets changed, if you will, from the Russian perspective on its way up the chain of command. Um, from the American perspective, though, in particular. Uh, I think that the Biden White House decided that as part of their strategy to try and mitigate any sort of Russian uh, uh, advances or, or at least um, elements of surprise and, and, and usefulness of, of um, activities, the, the Biden administration really thought that um, taking the information public would be um, the best course of action. Are there any drawbacks to this approach? It, it, it depends on, on the level of information that's provided. If it ends up being somewhat generic with regards to uh, the, the chemical weapons usage, for example, then there, there aren't going to be too many drawbacks with regards to that. Any drawbacks are going to come if the information release starts getting very specific about how they're obtaining the information, uh, which I think is one reason why, um, especially in news reports, we're seeing so many reports that were gathering this information from uh, unsecure Russian communications, um, which is a very important element of this um, uh, offensive, if you will. The fact that the Ukraine, that the Russians cannot have secure communications is a huge detriment to them, but it's a boon, if you will, for intelligence gathering in the West. The civilian death toll climbs higher in the war in Ukraine, and Western officials continue to condemn Russia over alleged war crimes. But, according to a newly surfaced video, the Ukrainian forces may not be so innocent either. Some of the following footage is graphic, and viewer discretion is advised. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Western officials continue to condemn Russia for alleged war crimes. The sickening images and accounts coming out of Bucha and other parts of Ukraine have only strengthened our collective resolve and unity. But as seen in this video that was posted to Telegram, there appears to be severely wounded Russian troops laying on the street, and they are surrounded by armed Ukrainian forces. It appears as if one of the Russians is still alive. Then, what looks to be a Ukrainian soldier shoots two rounds into the man's chest, but he continues moving. Then another round was fired towards his head, which appears to be a fatal shot. One of the dead men seen on the ground has his hands tied behind his back. The Ukrainian foreign minister was asked about the newly surfaced video. I haven't seen it. I heard about it. I want to uh, reassure you that Ukrainian army uh, observes the rules of warfare. Um, there was, of course, there might be uh, isolated incidents of the violation of these rules, and they will be definitely investigated. As Ukrainian forces continue to make ground outside of Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital is starting to show signs of life. But it appears to be bittersweet. 
On one hand, it's really nice to be here, out on the street, eating good food. But on the other, our people and soldiers in other regions neither feel safe nor have proper food. So I feel a little ashamed. We decided to open up more space and resume cooking food for our customers. But an ethical question arose as to whether we had the right to work and return to a normal life while our country remained in a state of war. Ukraine's foreign minister called for help from allies as two large operations are taking place in eastern Ukraine with thousands of tanks, planes and armored vehicles. He said it's reminiscent of World War II. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Russia's war in Ukraine has forced millions of people to flee their homes. While over four million people have left the country, many others are stuck in Ukraine. One mother prefers to shelter in a school than to leave her country. The convoy gets loaded up several times a week. Workers with Hungarian Baptist aid making the several-hour drive from Budapest, destination, western Ukraine. Today, they're headed to Berehova, a quaint town just across the border that's become a magnet for Ukrainians fleeing the war. Upon arrival, supplies unloaded by some of the kids staying at this shelter, what used to be a school. Inside classrooms, bunk beds, replaced desks, and photos of former students hang on the wall above the tiny shoes of the kids staying in the room today, like little Yeva and her mom, Diana. They fled Kyiv a few weeks ago, leaving behind her husband to fight the Russians. She says, we stood there and cried at the train station. My daughter was so mad at him, she thought he was leaving us. He said, Yeva, come give me a kiss, but she wouldn't. Yeva just too young to understand the sacrifice her dad is making, like so many other children here, scarred by the war. Even in this safe place, air raid sirens still go off. Aid continues to flow into Berehova. In the beginning of the war, it was largely just a stop for refugees fleeing to other countries. Now, they're staying put. For Hungarian Baptist aid, more refugees means more need for everything else, including helping hands. Pharmacist Daniel Nagrudny came to help from Philadelphia, the son of Ukrainian immigrants. But if people come together and come to the country and try to help out, then something actually gets done. It's definitely the spirit at a nearby church where a tiny volunteer operation has ramped up to hundreds of meals served every day as refugees decide to stay long term. The reasons can vary, everything from hope that the Ukrainian army will prevail to simply not wanting to live in a foreign country. For Diana, back at the school, the reason to not flee to neighboring Hungary was simple. She says, we feel like we're closer, somehow closer to my husband. I will go back the moment it's safe for my children. The war in Ukraine is already in its second month. Efforts are underway to rescue animals from war zones. Some of the rescued animals include horses, farm animals, and kangaroos. Let's take a look. Since the war began, the Ukrainian Equestrian Federation Charity Foundation has rescued over 100 horses from across the country. Volunteers first take the horses to a safe haven in western Ukraine, then help the animals find new homes in Ukraine and countries across Europe with their owners. For example, this is a show-jumping horse they rescued from the Kyiv region. When the bombing started, the owners of the horses just opened the stables and all the horses escaped and he escaped bombing. He spent 
21 days in the forest alone and you can see all these scratches he lost a lot, lost a lot of weight and then um, volunteers found him and uh, his owner found him as well and she asked us to bring here Animal rescuers trying to evacuate animals from a farm near Kiev had to brave ongoing fighting. Rescuers say they loaded five trucks with animals and will relocate them to a wildlife center in Kiev. But some animals still remain at large, scattered in nearby forests. Animals are stressed. To capture them is really difficult. We have to use anesthetics and other types of methods to catch them. But the most important thing is to evacuate them and start the recovery process. A family of tapirs and several kangaroos have been rescued from a zoological park near Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. The region has been under constant shelling since the war began, and almost 100 animals at the park were killed. And animals that managed to flee Ukraine with their owners also need help. A veterinary clinic on the Polish border is treating wounded animals and pets from Ukraine. Some uh, animals were very ill, so we must decided that they must stay here in Przemysl. Uh, and it will be a very bad situation, I think, in next month. So uh, help us, because uh, we must help this uh, animal in Ukraine. A vet says many of the animals were in desperate need of treatment. Apart from suffering from a lack of food or water, some arrived with injuries. The Boston Marathon is excluding Russians and Belarusians from running. The marathon's organizers say the decision was announced to show support for Ukraine. The Boston Marathon draws runners from around the globe. It's now in its 126th year. The director of the Multicultural Resource Center in Massachusetts spoke to the Epic Times. She says she is horrified by the decision. Her husband is Ukrainian, and her organization is backed by an attorney from Belarus whose work includes helping Ukrainian families. A Boston University graduate, who is a Russian citizen, told the outlet that the rule is not helping in the war. Russian and Belarusian citizens registered to run and living in the U.S. will still be allowed to compete, but not under the flags of their countries. Registered runners from Russia and Belarus who are still living in either country will not be able to run. A Palestinian who killed two people in a Tel Aviv bar was shot to death on Friday by Israeli security forces after an hours-long manhunt through the city. The gunman behind the deadly attack was an illegal resident, according to Israeli security services. Authorities identified the shooter as a man in his late 20s named Rayed Hazem from a Palestinian city in the West Bank. While they said he had, quote, no clear organizational affiliations and no prior arrests, they're classing the shooter as a terrorist. He killed at least two people and left many more wounded during Thursday's shooting before he himself was killed by security forces following the manhunt. Up next, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer wants to keep abortion legal in her state even if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. She's asking the state Supreme Court to recognize abortion as a constitutional right. A media report reveals that Black Lives Matter purchased a $6 million mansion with donation money. The organization calls the report racist. All that and more after this short break.
Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is launching a lawsuit to keep abortion legal in her state and recognize it as a right protected by the Michigan Constitution. She says this is in case the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Here are the details. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer filed a lawsuit on Thursday asking the Michigan Supreme Court to recognize abortion as a constitutional right protected by the state constitution. We know the Supreme Court is going to grant, um, release a decision on a case out of Mississippi any day. The Democratic governor said in a statement, if the U.S. Supreme Court refuses to protect the constitutional right to an abortion, the Michigan Supreme Court should step in. The state's attorney general, also a Democrat, supports the governor's actions. I'm determined to vigorously fight on behalf of women in this state and say, I will not participate in this. And I, I join the governor in her sentiment of wanting to do anything and everything we can to fight back. Whitmer is asking the state Supreme Court to stop enforcement of a 1931 state statute that banned abortion. The statute would become law again if the U.S. Supreme Court rules to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think we're going to have a problem in terms of licensure, in terms of insurance carriers. If this law remains on the books, um, I, I think that you're just going to see all abortion providers likely shut their doors. The attorney general has long said she would not enforce the ban. Genevieve Marnin, a pro-life advocate from Right to Life of Michigan, criticizes the attorney general's approach to abortion issues. People really should be upset, regardless of what your opinion is on abortion. When you have an attorney general who vowed to uphold and defend the state constitution and the state laws, and then publicly states that she will not do so, well, so she gets to decide what laws she likes and doesn't like, and, you know, the people can not have their laws defended. And I think that is a very terrible precedent. People should be very afraid of that. The Michigan governor is using her executive authority to bypass the lower courts and asking the state Supreme Court to fast-track her lawsuit. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors has spoken against a report about her organization's purchase of a $5.8 million mansion in Southern California. According to the April 4th report by New York Magazine, the 6,500-square-foot California estate was bought in October 2020. It used money that had been donated to Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which acts as a fundraising umbrella for BLM activism. Colors called the story a racist and sexist attack. It's unclear who leads the foundation since Colors stepped down in May 2021 amid criticism over its lack of financial transparency. The magazine says BLM leadership hoped to keep the existence of the house a secret. Colors says the purchase wasn't announced because the house required repairs and renovations before it could serve as a safe space for black people. Congressman Darrell Issa has called for a Justice Department investigation. New York's Attorney General is asking a court to hold former President Donald Trump in contempt and fine him $10,000 a day for failing to comply with a subpoena for documents. Attorney General Letitia James argued in court papers that Trump should be fined a sum sufficient to coerce his compliance. That's after he missed a March 31st deadline to turn over documents related to her ongoing civil investigation. She said Trump is in the process of appealing a February court ruling forcing him to answer questions under oath, but has not appealed a ruling establishing the deadline for him to provide documents. James says her investigation covered evidence that Trump may have misstated the value of assets like golf courses and skyscrapers on financial statements 
for more than a decade. A judge who was appointed by former President Bill Clinton is set to judge a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. Former President Trump demanded that Judge Donald Middlebrooks step back from the case, but he declined to recuse himself. The judge said he's never met or spoken with Bill or Hillary Clinton, and apart from being appointed by the former president, he hasn't had a relationship with either. A federal appeals court questions his neutrality. That's because of the very nature of his appointment to the federal bench by the defendant's husband. President Joe Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal workers is back in effect after a federal appeals court ruling. The ruling overturns an earlier block on the mandate. The appeals court did not directly address the previous judge's decision, but found that plaintiffs should have taken their complaints to different venues. The ruling means the injunction against the mandate is lifted. At issue is a September 2021 executive order that said requiring federal workers to get a COVID vaccine would help slow the spread of the CCP virus pandemic. It was issued when the Delta variant of the virus was circulating, but the current slate of vaccines didn't halt transmission from Delta and provided little protection against infection from Omicron. The suit against the mandate was brought by Feds for Medical Freedom, a group comprised of federal workers who said the order likely exceeded the president's authority. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has enshrined into state law patient visitation rights. This is to ensure patients are never again separated from their loved ones during a crisis, like so many were during the COVID-19 pandemic. DeSantis calls this a fundamental right. Here are the details from NTD's Grace Coulter. During pandemic lockdowns, the suffering of many Americans was exacerbated by policies barring families from visiting their loved ones in the hospital or nursing homes. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is now ensuring this will never again happen in the Sunshine State. On Wednesday, he signed into law the No Patient Left Alone Act. Protecting patients' rights. State Senator Eliana Garci, who introduced the bill, said it's about compassion and protecting human dignity. During the pandemic, I heard so many families, heart-wrenching stories, frustration, because they could not be with a relative who was hospitalized for whatever reason. We all know of people who sadly died alone, unable to feel the warmth of a loved one, one's touch or a final goodbye. <clears throat> this is unacceptable. And this law makes certain that this will never, ever happen again. The bill ensures that even during a crisis, patients can have loved ones visit them in healthcare facilities. It also ensures that vaccination status won't get in the way, barring facilities from requiring proof of vaccination to enter. Also, policies cannot prohibit physical contact, such as hugging between their loved ones. They would actually police this where you go in and you said, OK, you may be able to go, but you can't give. Uh, your wife a hug or you can't give your, your, your kid a hug? I mean, give me a break. Lawmakers previously credited Jacksonville resident Mary Daniel for inspiring the legislation. During the pandemic, Daniel was barred from visiting her husband in his Alzheimer's care home. After 114 days apart, she got a job as a dishwasher at the facility. This was the only way she could see him. Mary and her husband weren't alone. Such policies separated thousands of Americans from their loved ones nationwide. We went through a time period in this country where crisis and emergency became an excuse to treat human beings 
as something less than human beings. Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ladapo said Tuesday, this can never happen again. According to First Coast News, it was Mary and her husband's 26th anniversary when DeSantis signed the bill. She told the outlet it was the best gift ever. DeSantis says he hopes the federal government will take action to protect patient rights federally. Grace Coulter, NTD News. A player on the Los Angeles Angels accidentally threw a baseball at a boy years ago. His mother is now filing a lawsuit. The boy was six years old at the time. He suffered a skull fracture and brain damage from the incident. The lawsuit says in September 2019, six-year-old Bryson was walking with his father in the first row of stadium seating toward the dugout. That's where players were meeting fans and signing autographs before the game. He was struck on the side of the head when pitcher Keenan Middleton was warming up on the field and threw a ball towards a player who missed the catch. The family's lawyer says Bryson was rushed to the emergency room in critical condition and then sent to a children's hospital. The lawsuit says the team should have more netting along the side of the field, and it says players shouldn't throw balls during warm-ups in areas where spectators could be struck, especially when the team encourages fans to arrive early to meet players. Mexico's National Migration Institute said authorities found 167 migrants from different nationalities hidden in a cargo truck near the city of Puebla. The institute calls the operation a rescue. In a statement, the Migration Institute said 135 of the migrants are from Guatemala, 20 from Honduras, 8 from El Salvador, and 4 from Cuba. The operation led to the arrest of two Mexican nationals for human trafficking, and the cargo truck was also seized. Sharp-eyed TSA officer in Boston stopped a passenger from bringing a sword aboard a plane. The man was apparently completely unaware that the walking cane he was using had a long blade hidden inside. After TSA officers confiscated the concealed, sharp-edged weapon, the passenger was allowed to travel on his way. This is a reminder that if the passenger had put the cane in his checked luggage, it would have been okay. Any sharp objects in checked bags should be sheathed, like this one, to prevent injury to baggage handlers and inspectors. Still to come, the Bitcoin 2022 conference kicks off in Miami. It's called the world's biggest conference of its kind. Find out where digital currency is headed with NTD's own Phil Zoe after the short break. Another virus is rearing its ugly head, killing egg-laying hens. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say the avian flu poses a low threat to humans, but the effect, however, can be seen in your grocery bill. The highly contagious flu has forced farmers to kill millions of hens, reducing the country's egg supply and driving up prices. On Thursday, Midwest retailers paid more than double the price for large eggs, and analysts say if things keep going the way they are, we can expect pricier eggs this summer. Americans are more in debt than ever before. According to Federal Reserve's Consumer Credit Report, consumer credit jumped by nearly $42 billion in February. That puts it at a record high of $4.5 trillion. $1.1 trillion of that is what's known as revolving credit. It includes credit cards, 
and the category jumped more than 11 percent during the 12-month period ending in February. Non-revolving credit, which includes student and car loans, grew 8.4 percent to hit $3.4 trillion. It's not clear if people are actually buying more things or if they are just paying more for items that became more expensive. The Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami, Florida had its second day on Thursday. NTD's Phil Zoe is there to give us a taste of what it's like. To the moon. That's what everyone here at this event is hoping for Bitcoin. Welcome to Bitcoin Miami, what many people are calling the biggest Bitcoin conference in history. Let's check it out. I, just the energy is super high and everyone is super bullish. I spoke to the head of business development, Stephen Nash, and his team over at fintech company Drive Wealth. He showed me the pioneering technology that's shaking up the finance world. Our, our technology allows for any customer anywhere in the world uh, to trade stocks and Bitcoin through the most popular wallet. Besides investing, there's also new tech for Web3. At Emerge.io, they're building a new device that allows you to physically feel the metaverse. And this device in front of you enables this sense of touch using a force field technology, literally using sound energy. Sounds interesting. I had to give this emerging technology a try. The CEO and I decided to battle it out in a match of might in virtual reality. As you can see here, we have 50 people in our booth right now wanting to demo the product. Besides new tech and the metaverse, how about prizes? Crypto exchange Bullish is awarding one whole Bitcoin to whoever wins the Ride the Bull Challenge. We're actually uh, basically a new type of exchange um, basically that uses an AMM, or an automatic market maker, right? And we use something from DeFi called liquidity pools to actually create the liquidity for the market. Free Bitcoin? Count me in. Besides crypto firms, there are thousands of fans, including Victoria from Australia, who missed the conference last year. I, my brother's a Bitcoiner as well, so I can communicate and talk to him. We can have interesting conversations, but not so much with my friendship circles. But they're slowly catching on. The conference will continue here in Miami until Saturday. Get ready for severe weather this summer. The Tropical Meteorology Project team at Colorado State University released its Atlantic Basin hurricane forecast, and it's not good. Forecasters are predicting 19 named storms this season. That's five more than normal, and nine are expected to become hurricanes. Four of those predicted hurricanes are expected to reach Category 3 or higher. Forecasters also say advances in satellite technology have enabled them to detect weaker storms they previously wouldn't have known about. That's one reason why we see more storms get named these days. Costa Rica's Juan Santa Maria International Airport reopened hours after a Boeing 757-200 cargo aircraft made an emergency landing. Aviation authorities say it skidded off the runway, separating its tail. Images from the site showed a yellow plane emblazoned with the DHL logo doused with firefighting foam. It had landed on a grassy field next to a runway. The tail had detached and a wing had broken. The closure affected some 8,500 passengers and 57 commercial and cargo flights. DHL said the crew was unharmed and that one member was undergoing a medical review as a precaution. The company also said an investigation is ongoing to determine what happened. The aircraft was bound for Guatemala. It apparently had a failure in the hydraulic system and the issue prompted the pilot to request an emergency landing shortly after takeoff. A Boeing spokeswoman said it would defer questions to investigating authorities. 
Coming up, the first round of the French presidential election is this Sunday. Two opposition leaders wrap up their campaign trail and urge citizens to go out and vote. And cheaper Russian crabs are emerging in South Korea's seafood market thanks to global sanctions against Moscow. A debate is underway whether to resist them. That and more on NTD News. French presidential candidates hold their last big rallies ahead of the election on Sunday. Marine Le Pen from the National Rally Party and Eric Zimmer from the Reconquest Party hope to unseat President Emmanuel Macron. French presidential candidate Marine Le Pen, who is the leader of the National Rally Party, held her last big rally on Thursday. In her last speech, she called on citizens to vote. I beg you to go and vote. There's no win unless you go and vote. To those who have given up on this citizen's gesture because of your anger, your disgust, disillusion, or tiredness, I tell them I understand you. But right now, get back into your role of citizen. In the presidential election, you can't abstain. This is Le Pen's third run for president. She presents herself as someone who would safeguard French civilization and the French identity, but has softened her rhetoric and her image this time. You don't abstain, especially when you are a patriot, especially if you know that the country needs to wake up. Time has come for our country to lift its head up. Le Pen is closely behind President Emmanuel Macron in the opinion polls, and Eric Zimmer from the Reconquest Party is usually in third or fourth place. Zimmer is a former TV pundit who launched the Reconquest Party late last year. He's now reaching out to the country's young voters. Speaking to the youth today is not talking to a whole new audience. It's speaking to the future of the country. Every word counts, and the truth must be said. Young voters at Zimmer's rally react to his policy ideas. His ideas really interest me. Everything he said tonight represents the France of the future, and I can see him going to the second round. The French presidential election will take place in two rounds, first on Sunday, April 10th, then on April 24th. In the last presidential election in 2017, Macron won around two-thirds of the votes, while Le Pen won a third. China's megacity Shanghai is still under a tight COVID lockdown, and the French embassy in Beijing said French citizens there won't be able to vote in France's Sunday election. A Parisian in the city called it a shame to miss the vote. When the lockdown started in the district of Puxi and Pudon district hadn't been reopened, we said there was little chance that we would be released before the first round of the election. We realized that quite quickly. It's a shame as it's the first time that I'm not able to vote. We don't have many opportunities to voice our opinions because French people living abroad have few opportunities to vote. The French embassy said they had repeatedly asked Chinese authorities to open polling stations inside the city's French consulate and to allow voters and polling officials to leave their homes. But all those requests have been denied. Chinese authorities said that was due to, quote, the serious and complex situation in Shanghai. France requires voters to cast their ballots only in person or by proxy. Applications for proxy voting must be done in advance. In most cases, voters have to show up in person at a designated location like a police station or consulate. 
The embassy said there were more than 4,800 registered French voters in Shanghai as of last December. According to the latest official figures, the city has seen more than 21,000 new infections, but the actual number may be even higher. Prices of Russian crabs have plunged thanks to international sanctions against Russian seafood imports, but in South Korea, some consumers believe they should avoid buying them. Crabs from Russia are catching on at the seafood market in Seoul, like this king crab and smaller snow crabs. Crabs were very expensive a couple of months ago because we didn't have enough supplies from Russia. But recently the supply has increased and the price has become much cheaper. I can say that usually 100 people visit the market, but now the weather is getting warmer and about 200 people are coming in a day. Since the end of February, Russian crab prices have dropped by almost 50 percent due to Western sanctions on Russian seafood imports. Meanwhile, China has ramped up pandemic lockdowns on major cities, further boosting Russian seafood shipments to South Korea. There are only Russian snow crabs today. I didn't know it's cheap now because more crabs are being imported to our country after the sanctions against Russia were imposed due to the war. While some are enjoying the rare delicacy, others believe governments and consumers should join the global effort to ban Russian seafood. That Russian crab is not even a necessity. I don't think it's right to import from Russia and eat them because they are cheap. So I oppose importing them and I think we should impose sanctions against Russia and join others for a quick end to the war. South Korea has curbed Russian coal imports amid other economic and financial sanctions. But the country did not put any restrictions on Russian food. Just ahead, Renaissance painter Raphael is the star of a new exhibition opening at London's National Gallery. The exhibition brings together more than 90 works to chart the life and career of the Italian master. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Lego has produced a life-size version of the McLaren F1 car. It will be on display this weekend when the Australian Grand Prix kicks off in Melbourne. The project contains almost 290,000 Lego bricks and took about 1,900 hours to piece together. 27 people from the Lego group and McLaren F1 engineering teams were involved in its design and build. The car is comprised of five separate components, including four wheels, a car body, suspension, and even the newly introduced halo. But it's more than just a lifelike adaptation. The car also has a number of mechanical features like moving pistons for its engine, a locking differential, and steering activated from the cockpit. It can even accommodate a real F1 driver. The model is set to hit the Albert Park circuit with the opening of the 2022 Australian Grand Prix. One of Venice's most famous Renaissance buildings has finally reopened to the public after a five-year-long restoration effort. The iconic house runs along the entire north side of St. Mark's Square. It's a favorite backdrop for the thousands of tourists visiting Venice each year. In the past, it was the home of the Venetian procurators. They were the city officials in charge of the cathedral. They were not paid, but had the privilege of living in St. Mark's Square forever. Since 1832, this building has been used as the headquarters of Generali Insurance Group in Venice. 
The company's offices are located on the first and second floors. Of the three floors being renovated, the third is dedicated to the human safety net. This is a global network that supports vulnerable families with young children and integrating refugees through work and entrepreneurship. The exhibition spaces, workspaces, event spaces, and an auditorium are open to the public. Raphael is the star of a new exhibition opening at the National Gallery in London. The show is believed to be the most comprehensive exploration of the Italian Renaissance master's work ever staged. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The Raphael exhibition brings together more than 90 works to chart the life and career of the Italian master. Born in 1483 in the Marche region of Italy, he lived a short life. But his prolific work secured him a place as one of the giants of Western art. These two exhibitions were the first to try to encompass all of Raphael's career. Not just aspects of it, but all of it. And the variety of activities that he was involved with. Not just painting and drawing, but his work as an architect, as an archaeologist, an art theorist, and as a designer for tapestry, for print, for applied arts, and for sculpture. The exhibition was meant to open in 2020 to mark 500 years since his death, but the pandemic delayed the event. Our colleagues across Europe and, and North America for, who provided loans were all incredibly understanding. I mean, there's been a lot of solidarity, I would say, within the, uh, the museum community uh, over the pandemic, and we've all tried to ensure that loans could still happen, exhibitions could still happen, even though we had quite dr drastic rescheduling. The National Gallery has nine works by Raphael in its collection, but some of the world's most prestigious museums have loaned even more art, like the Louvre in Paris and the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. It's this rare gathering of the Renaissance giant's work that makes the display so unusual. His paintings and drawings are so fragile that they seldom travel. And uh, today you can see some artworks coming from uh, the Vatican, from the Louvre, from the Uffizi, from the Museum del Prado. So it's quite unique. Raphael died in Rome at just 37 years old. More than 500 years later, as the world tries to emerge from a pandemic, it's the perfect time to revisit his work. Raphael opens on April 9th and runs until July 31st. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Shen Yun Performing Arts is touring around the world with its mission to revive traditional Chinese culture as it existed before communism. The show touches the hearts of people from all walks of life. In Stamford, audience members said it was a unique, educational, and moving experience. I've seen ballets, I've seen opera, I've seen symphony performances, and this kind of combined a lot of each of those things. Every year, Shen Yun has a whole new production, which showcases 5,000 years of Chinese culture through music and dance. I have seen this show several times now, and once again, it was brilliant. Overwhelmed, enchanted by it all. I want to tell all my... Tears are coming to my eyes. Yes. Conductor Harrison Volante, who's been listed by Marquis Who's Who, saw the performance with his wife. He was especially impressed by Shen Yun's live orchestra. Oh, they were wonderful. That's a good question. I particularly like the mixture of the different instruments because it just added so much color to the uh, performance. I thought the conductor did a wonderful job. He really did. 
because it's, a, it's not easy music. And the, it had to be exactly precise so that the dancers would always know exactly where he was. It worked Correct. out very well. Correct. Lovely experience and so special and not like anything else that we've ever experienced. Biotech executive Gregory Za saw the performance with his wife. He called the show an exquisite experience. Very moving, very colorful, very acrobatic, and this is our first time. We've never seen this before. I like the message of compassion. That was, you know, there was a, a spiritual element to it that's normally not something that we see in theater or in the performing arts. And so I felt that that, that brought something to the performance that made it, you know, particularly unique. Loved it, thought it was great. Everyone was well prepared on stage. Actor Connor Antico and his girlfriend said the performance brought smiles to their faces from the moment they came in. I, can't, I couldn't tell you how, uh, how taken I was by how they can really just float. They just float. It's like it's from heaven in a way. I mean, what inspired me the most is the fact that there's so much, I mean, it's more than just the dancing, it's, they're, they're sharing a story. Shen Yun performs stories from ancient legends and stories in modern-day China. All of the performances display traditional Chinese values. Impressed with the dancing to start with, yeah, the dancing was fantastic. A J.P. Morgan executive director said the performance was educational for his children. Um, we brought our children because we thought we would get them to be introduced into the dancing and the, 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 the show and that we would learn something. Um, and I think that was, it was a big success. NTD News, Stamford, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.